Welcome to Continuing the Conversation. I'm Carla Muzu. And I'm Glenn Collins. Fost Church is a community creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. Continuing the Conversation is one of the ways that we try to create space for an expanded dialogue and interactions based on the conversations we are having at Fost Church. The book of Genesis takes us from the primeval Adam to Adam and narratively carries us through some of the most formational stories of our faith. So many of us grew up hearing these stories in ways that captured our imaginations as children, but left us wanting as we began to engage them critically. Over the next few weeks, our community will engage in a conversation that takes a fresh look at these stories to create space for them to be subverted and reimagined as they offer a new way forward. In the story of Genesis, a character shows up twice and is only given two lines. In these two lines, Hagar, an enslaved Egyptian, gives a name to the God of Israel. This name will affect how God could be understood. It is in the strength of these quiet voices that Genesis shifts, creating space for those outside of the controlling narrative. Join us as we sit in Genesis 16 to experience the wisdom of Hagar. So let's jump in. But before we get into the head, heart, and hands question, Carl, do you have any thoughts or things that stayed in your mind from the sermon? Yeah, for, for me, I think like like one of the biggest pieces from from this message like, or, and from the conversation, the takeaway from the conversation this past week was really like exploring the notion of, of power dynamics and even the way that language is used to identify people, right? Because like, you know, like one of the, you know, this is kind of going behind the scenes a little bit, but one of the incidences that happened, like as we were even recording the, the sermon, um, like the language that was used that you were just kind of quoting the biblical text where it talked about her as an Egyptian slave versus an enslaved Egyptian, mm-hmm. right? And the idea that um, this language is, was, is given to her, it becomes a noun, it becomes her identity. But also the idea that when we use kind of like adjectives in front of people's names, it, and again, it, it uses to dis, it's, it's it's a move to displace them from the story. And so when we hear Hagar, who has been displaced at every turn in this story, she's the Egyptian slave. She's the Egyptian this like she's never this. She's never meant to be the central character in the way the story is told. But yet, her story becomes so central to the way Israel's narrative is actually told. Mm-hmm. And so I love the fact that in subversive ways, in ways that I don't even know if the authors are, are, are fully intending to bring it to the front. Like we see these subversive narratives pop up over and over and over again in the biblical text. And I, I feel that it is intentional, especially with the idea of like multiple editors of these narratives, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel that, so I do feel it's intentional, but I, I, I'm just making an assumption when I say that. But it's, it's interesting to me how these subverse, like the subversions of the main narratives, the subversions of those narratives offer so much insight into the way that I think God works for justice. God works, you know, with compassion and mercy, and is it is always drawing the forward, like the story forward, in 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 the ways of calling out oppression. You, you know what I mean? Um, and so even in the midst of that narrative, like you, like when it's like it's like what we talked about. Last, I think the other week, where the space between the words offers us um, insight into the stories in a sense. And, and I think like that's what's happening with like when we read the story of Hagar, like Hagar only has two lines, but within Hagar's two lines, it offers actually the way forward and liberation for, for Israel when Israel finds itself in Hagar's position, as you pointed out in the message. Mm. Although I'd, I'd push a little bit on that with just one aspect of it, it's not always forward motion. It's not always progress. 
but there's always movement within the biblical text. Because at times, um, going through uh, the First Testament, uh, the Jewish Bible's text, that you have Ezra and Nehemiah's come in and try to pull things back. So it shows a a need for a consistent resolve to say, how do we advance the story? As opposed to an assumption that the story always advances. Yeah, and I'm not saying that the story itself is always a forward progression. I'm saying that the, the, the space between the text is always mm. pointing us to a mm. forward progression. It's the subversion that's always pointing us to a forward progression. Like you wouldn't read the story of Hagar from Abraham's perspective and read it as saying, well, Hagar's actually offering a way forward for liberation for the people of Israel in the next book of the Bible, right? Yeah. Like you wouldn't read it that way if you're reading it from Abraham's perspective. It's only the subversion. Mm -hmm. It's only the space between the text that offers us that insight. No, no that's good, man. Um, and it even goes today, because as I was going through that passage, um, there's some debate over, it generally depends on if you want to make sure that we understand Isaac as the true heir apparent, the um, the rightful son, that they will not translate the term that goes to wife as wife. They try to substitute the, the notion of um, concubine, slave wife, things there are terms for, even in Exodus in about 40 or numbers when it talks about taking extra brides. They have terms for those brides and none of them are Isha. In this one, it does that comparison and people still wrestle with Hagar's subversive place in the text. Yeah, which is, I find really interesting actually because like it goes into the notion of the way that people think about monarchs and things like mm -hmm. that, um, about the idea of bastard children not being rightful heirs, right? Mm -hmm. that, that notion. And it, it's interesting that, like you pointed out in your message, that God chooses the second, you know what I mean? The lesser then, um, to, to often work through. Right, like the like the yeah. like like the lesser than according to the narrative. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Oh no, I just start laughing because in my head, it's just like yes, God of the bastards, and yeah. that. Well, was... no, but but for real, like like you know, um, and that, but I think that's that's how it works, right? Like, um, and then the you know like 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 reality is that the bastards are shown to be the the the, the truly inspired way forward, right? Mm -hmm. It's 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 basically it's typical Game of Thrones storytelling. You know what I mean, right? Jon Snow. So like Ishmael is like, turns out to be Jon Snow. You know what I mean? So you're saying Game of Thrones isn't cool because Genesis did it first? I like no, it. I'm saying Game of Thrones is cool because it paid homage. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's awesome. And yeah, that's a, in these presence, in these spaces, that tension, um, they insist on being heard. And we only get to say, what do we do with their voice? If people are still wrestling, like you said, if God is the God of the bastards, the unclaimed, the marginalized, if God's tend to sit in those positions, um, wrestling with their voice, whether we say we need to subsume it, we need to step on it, kind of silence it to fit into the main narrative or allow it that break that says, wait a minute, we need to rethink what we're doing. She has to be wrestled with. No, absolutely. And I think it calls us into this present moment. Like, like we're in a cultural moment right now in, 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 in the world, not, mm -hmm. not just even in North America, in the world where like things are being called out and where the main narrative is being deconstructed and called out and dismantled and, and mm -hmm. white supremacy is being called out. And I think part of the reason why we're in this moment is that we have ignored those marginalized and oppressed 
and, and, and voices that were not centralized. Had we listened to the wisdom of Hagar, had we listened to the wisdom of the oppressed, had we listened to the wisdom of the bastards in that sense, mm-hmm. right? America, because that's where it's, that's where it's, you know, it's emanating out of America right oh, now, um, would be in a very different place because to listen to the voice of the oppressed is to find yourself in a place of repentance because you have to turn to listen. Because you know, you know, what I mean? you have to find yourself in that spot of repentance in order to listen. And I think, like America's, the biggest falling in the midst of this is there's there's a refusal to repent of of the ways that it's it's abused and oppressed, and and now ignored and not listened to. And it's almost like that calling out, like Hagar is just is Hagar's voice is almost whispering to to America right now, to Donald Trump right now, to the conservative party, you know, the conservative people right now to those who tend to want to move towards the idea of power. And, and I would say liberals and, and progressives as well. Mm-hmm. But that voice is whispering, saying, repent and listen to the marginalized. Repent and listen to the oppressed, because in that you will find your own salvation. And I think like that's what Israel, like when, when we listen yeah. to that voice, Israel finds its own salvation. So like for me, like, like this whole thing is so relevant to this moment in the way that, in the way that it was unpacked in, in, mm-hmm. in the community on Sunday. And at least to me, um, especially comparing it to um, my homeland, is like within the liberals, you see more. You mean uh, your fatherland? But <laughs> 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 uh, in, in the States, you see the liberals um, taking more of Abraham's role. And they know they have some affluence. They just don't want any headache. They want peace at any cost. And so once the people who see themselves as losing power, the ones who would understand themselves in Sarah's role, get upset and say, this person's a threat to my position. It says, do whatever you want. Yeah. It even goes as far as to say, abuse her how you will. This is your, this is your slave. And Hagar goes from being a person back down to property. Yeah. But I, I want to, I want to correct something that mm-hmm. actually that you said, and, and, and I, and, and not, I know that we're, it's not about correcting normally, but I, but I feel mm-hmm. like it, it must be said is that they don't want peace. They want power. Right. Mm. Because peace, it, it may be power makes them feel peaceful, but the violence that is then deliberated on the oppressed is the antithesis of peace. Right. So for the for mm. the for the for the for the enslaved African that was raped, that's not peace. That was a reflection of power for those who are, are using power to find their own sense of peace. Those who are being crushed by it do not have any sense of peace. Oh, absolutely. And. Good clarification for anyone hearing, because when I say peace, I don't mean peace as in everything is restful. I mean, social order and the peace of Rome is like it's an it's an empire statement because peace would not be represented in a family fight that you just say, go ahead and beat and I'll step away. Yeah. And, and, I, and I agree with you I, yeah. and I get that. And I, and I, I understand that. Yeah. But I would say like one of the things that I've really been challenged on in this last little while is that we have to call a thing a thing. Like so we, like like we cannot call war peace. You know, you know, you know what I mean. Even though, yes, we understand what we're saying when we say that, mm-hmm. we have to call a thing a thing in this day and age because most people do not understand what we are saying. They say, when we say peace, they think we're talking about peace, but we're not talking about peace. You know, you know, you know, you know what I mean. It's the subtext and undertones in the midst of that oh, where yeah, we have yeah. to call a thing a thing in this day and age. So subtlety's not our friend, as Brene Brown says. To be clear is to be kind. 
Well, it's even even like in light of what happened with Louis Giglio recently. I'm not, I'm not saying that you have this blunder, so don't 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 take Ooh. that out, right? But in trying to pacify white people, truthfully, um, you know, he starts talking about white blessing and the the blessing of slavery and things like that because he's trying to use language to articulate. Well, it wasn't good, but somehow it makes us feel comfortable, so therefore it's a blessing. And I'm like, dude, get, like like all you're doing is you're you're literally using that whole notion. Like you call peace, violence, peace, mm-hmm. right? And, and 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 that's basically, for me at least, it's it's shaking the way that those terminologies. Like I I, I like yes, yeah. I understand what Pax Romana is, and the, you know the peace of Rome and that idea, but that was always a misnomer, and 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 we don't actually critique the misnomer. We don't critique the way we're yeah. using the language, and I, and I just I felt really convicted oh. in this last little bit to say we must call evil evil. We must call mm. violence violence. No, no, I could I can hear that. Um, for me, just because when we use words, we're using them positionally. Is a, and I'd say um, something that we never accept is that when power says peace, when Abraham says peace, he means his world doesn't have to be affected. And so the peace for Abraham is the torture of Hagar. The peace of the ruler is the torture of the slave. And in, in these ways, one person's hell is the other person's law and order. And that's where you're probably right. In this moment, we might want to step away from that. But I think as a general part of rhetoric going forward, it's helpful to to be able to clearly articulate that when power talks about peace, they never mean freedom for the people. They mean standard operating. And so when we hear these positional claims, because everyone's saying we're talking about the same thing, everyone's saying we want order, we want peace, we want freedom, we want equality but depending on which part of the story you're in those words represent worlds of differences yeah and i and i get that and i, and I think like it's e- even after this moment mm-hmm. i think like it's important for us to actually begin to use language that aptly describes what the thing that we're mm-hmm. talking about and, I, and I, at least that's something i'm walking away with where i i, I have had a tendency to use language in ways that kind of obscure the the meaning of something and mm-hmm. i think in this moment what's been revealed to me to you know to use heidegger's conceal and reveal kind of language um okay homie, you're not just brushing over that since you're referencing a very dense philosopher for a specific reading of him so what does heidegger mean well, with reveal and conceal well i'm going to butcher heidegger so this is my my just my take on like a very Carl nuanced way of talking about reveal and conceal is that like is like the things that that, that we when we when we ch- attempt to conceal something something is always revealed mm-hmm. when we attempt when we attempt to reveal something we are always concealing something else mm-hmm. and so we're playing a game of hide and seek basically with yeah. our language and so all I'm saying is that we need to move away from this game of hide and seek to the best that we can to say what does the language re- like the way that we have used language to conceal mm-hmm. some things what is that actually revealing and then when we reveal other things, what is it actually trying to conceal, right? So the language uh-huh. of peace is doing both. Um, it's revealing something about us when we use that language. And it's also trying to conceal the fact that it's actually talking about violence, uh-huh. right? So it's, it's, it's doing, it's doing this, um, this dance in a sense. It's playing a game of hide and seek with us. And I think that we need to do our best to delimit it. That's all. That's I'm just going to say you missed a beautiful opportunity there to say it's playing a game of Heidegger and seek, but... <laughs> You know what? You have to do you. Um, oh, it's playing the game of Heidegger and Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry for anyone who listens. Um, yeah, for, for me, the beauty of this was in every other aspect of when we talk about God's self-revealing, we generally assume that God speaks from God's self to condescend to humanity. And that condescension means that when God speaks to humanity, they can't always hear it. Like they, they can only hear in the same idea, like what is revealed hides other things for them. But this is the only case in scripture to where something is revealed about God from humanity. Hagar, the Egyptian, the powerless, the one who said I should die in the desert rather than live in abuse, says you see me. And when God is revealed again in the story of Exodus, goes up to Moses and says, I am the God who sees, I am the God who hears. And so it becomes integral to their own understanding of freedom, liberation, and the ability to hope for something. And it comes into God's character first in the slave's mouth. So do you think like when God introduces God's self as the God who sees, the God who mm -hmm. hears, um, is it sort of like Hagar gave him an MC name? And so all of a sudden, like, that's how he introduced himself. It's like, yo, what up, man? My name's Ceno Brown, right? Like that would have been my MC name back in the day. And so it was given to me by other people as a joke or even not even as a joke, but just, you know, mm -hmm. like as, as you do with such. Um, and all of a sudden, so God's like, yeah, man, my name's the God that sees because that's what Hagar called me because I'm the God that sees. Now what's up? <laughs> right. So it's almost like that God is adapting to the language that is being now used about God. Yes, as long as I can say that he did not adopt the Janko baggy pants era of hip hop, because I just don't think that represents God well. Yeah, he was probably like, you know, he's probably born in the mumble rap era. <laughs> oh, that hurts more. Gucci, Gucci, Gucci. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, well, we need to move on. So stepping into the. Well, dude, what's, what, stood out, what stood out for you, man? Oh, that's what I just said. The naming, uh, her okay, ability name. to name, because most of the time we try to understand spirituality and God is God always revealing God's self, that we can't say anything of God, that we can't name anything of God, that it always has to be revelation. And that revelation, first and foremost, is always beyond our understanding. But in this instance, you have a naming and a revealing of God from a person outside the main narrative that directly affects the very hope of Israel itself, that her wisdom is what names God for the coming Exodus when he shows up and says, do you know who I am as God? That I am the one who hears the cry and the agony, which was the same word of agony used when said, your agony called to me. And I responded, related to Hagar, and said that your son will be called, I listen. And it enters into the first line to Moses again to say, um, Ishmael, which is the same name that they said, your son will be called Ishmael. So it, it turns everything that happened to the powerless outsider that was abused by the house, by Abram, by Sarah, revealed to God what it means to be God in the world. And it was from that powerlessness that something was revealed, that Exodus could happen, that the hope of a tribe turning into a nation, of a world being brought back to creation, um, came from the mouth of the one person you would never listen to. And it came from humanity speaking, not God saying, here, this is who I am. It came from naming real action and experience. Mm -hmm. Like that to me was the most profound 
because typically the way I've been taught is if you can memorize the names of God and experience can never play into this, that the names of God are cold, static, eternal. They do not change. There is no development. And in this one moment, the greatest development of the character of God is in the mouth of the Egyptian. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, like, I, like, I know that was profound, even like as it sat with the group. And we talked about that idea of experiential knowledge of God and the idea of naming God in the midst of that. And one of the people in, in, in the community, they, they, were, they said like um, they didn't know how they could give a name to God. But then at the same time, um, God knows me. So maybe mm-hmm. I would say, um, you know, the God who knows me. And I was like, and it was just really that was just a really profound um, echo mm-hmm. of the text. You, yeah. you, you know what I mean? And I thought that was really cool. So with that, man, um, why don't we, you know, we jump into the uh, three sets of questions within our community um, for our conversation. It's head, heart, and hands. Glenn, why don't you give us a, a brief explanation of each of those? The head, heart, and hands is three levels of question asking to make sure that we can address it in, in the ways that we interact as, as people. The head is conceptual. It's where we ask the questions of narratives, framework, how we have thought about things. Then we step into heart questions, which are reflective. It asks how our story interacts with the story that we're thinking about, how the systems and understandings we have, it brings it into an experiential moment that we can say, I've understood. And it either goes along with, argues with, but allows us that space of play together. And then we move from that experiential into the tangible, the hands question where we say, we believe that God, the kingdom of God incarnation happens through the community and the people. And so we ask that question of how do we make this tangible real, something that somebody else could experience within our lives. So stepping into our head question, Hagar has two lines in the entire Bible and yet her experience names God. How does naming God from personal experience affect your understanding of God's name? Why don't you take that first, man? Well, for me, it's um, I've always struggled with the, with the sense of saying um, that I could say anything about God that's anything other than nonsense. I'm just trying to fill the air. But to give credence to the notion that my experience can effectively name that the way I've seen, the way I've experienced or come to understand God actually affects some of the idea for the character of God is freeing. It's, it's a bit liberating because I don't have to try to uh, check it against anything else. And that was a big thing to me is like what Hagar experienced would not fit into the first part of Genesis. Genesis, it was never God seeing, it was God finding out. God heard noise in the garden, came in, was like, hey guys, what's up? Where are you? Afterwards, it said that God was upset with the violence all over earth and then inspected. There's always a prompt than an inspection. And in this moment, it was, you see me in, mm-hmm. in all of it, that it was this moving idea that we could say God is present so I can look over my life, say, where have I seen God present and how would I name this God? And that's okay. Like that naming actually shows something true, not something that I should be fearful of. No, definitely. Um, one of the things like for myself in the, in the midst of this, is you know in the in the exodus moment where where moses is standing in front of the bush Mm -hmm. and he's like who are you Mm -hmm. and basically we always 
kind of chop it up to I am, right? And is is God's response? God God mm-hmm. names some God names God's self I am, and there's a part of me that that really liked that version of the story because it, it left it ambiguous. I didn't actually have to name God. I didn't actually have to say anything about God because I am. Well, what does it actually mean? Right? It doesn't really mean anything, truthfully. Um, but something that's really been speaking to me in the last while was like reading through the gospel of John and you have those I am statements from Jesus. So I am the way, I'm the door, mm-hmm. I am the gate, I am the, the you know, the, re- the the resurrection, that kind of stuff. Um, well, like, like again, it depends on how you read it, whether he's making divine statements or not. It, it, it puts language to like, I am, and then something, I am, whatever. And when we also dive into the the Tanakh or to the, the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament, and you know, and God begins to name God's self even in the Old Testament. I am the provider. I am the reconciler. I am the healer. I am, you know, and so you actually have this naming of God in tangible ways, right? Like, because I am a provider is not, well, I wonder what provision means, mm-hmm. right? Like, like it's tangible. Like God is named, I or God self-names or God is named, mm-hmm. I am provider because, well, there was tangible provision that was met. And and, and so it really, it, it pushed me to move past this I this like philosophical like nuancing of, of of the name of God like I am and it's like oh yeah so what could I am uh, and, and you know like I, I you know like I think it was Louis Giglio just to give him something positive for today that broke down the <laughs> name of I am um, into like B right and so then I, I remember taking that and like okay well well what is becoming you know what I mean and and, and like what does it mean to become. And, and and I just playing around with like this philosophical language of this idea of I am. And, but reality, it was to no real point. It was mm-hmm. just philosophizing for the sake of philosophizing um, in order to actually create distance between having to name God. And so my own understanding of God was almost, it was too painful to name it. So therefore I philosophized about it. Mm-hmm. And so... It was, I'm trying to remember what theologian it was or scholar. I want to say it was Elizabeth, um, what's her name? Elizabeth Johnson. Elizabeth Johnson, where she talks about the God beyond us, the God with us, and the God within us. Mm. And I really resonated with her explanation of the God with us, where it's not the God over us. It's not the God that rules us. It's the God that walks with us. And that was really powerful for me to be like, like, and so I would say that like when I, when I, my experience to name God, it's like, yeah, my experience, my, my life, there's been a lot of painful moments, especially when it comes to religion and when it comes to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to be able to say, well, who is God to me? Well, God is the God who's with me in the midst of this. God is the God that walks with me in the midst of this. And so like, like I say all that to say, like, like it, it, it took me a long time to be able to even just say those words because those words, are, 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 are tantamount to the pain that I feel actually, you, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's easy, I think like for me at least, my experience wanted me to distance myself from being able to name God in a real way. But when I did name God in a real way, it actually provided a way forward for me, provided healing for me, provided a way to actually enter back in to the community, community of God, regardless how messed up it is, how me- like broken people are going to are going to break people, right? Like like yeah, yeah. hurt people are going to hurt people, like that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we're all on this journey of of, of repentance and reconciliation and being reconciled to God, and 
if there's grace for me, then there's grace for others in the midst of that. And if, if God walks with me, then God walks with others in the midst of that. And for me, at least that was very healing to be able to name God in that way. And I know just um, because we've traveled together a, a minute now, is that also as we've come to accept that we have the ability to name God, um, it's allowed us to step towards things rather than just philosophizing, which always makes you feel good because you're like, no, no, God's important to me. Look at the abstractions I can make. But it's never useful because it doesn't allow you to say, here's how we come into being. We can just talk about beingness. Is that as as we move towards the naming aspect, I've noticed uh, we've been able to, with more clarity and um, value, say something for the church because we can name a reality. We can say, this is the movement forward. Here is something we see that that gives something of value to add where anything else was maybe good as an exercise, but it was never constructive. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And I think like what, what, it, what it highlighted for me is how easy it is for us to get stuck in that kind of apathetic, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Deconstructive, but we can't say anything about God. So we say nothing about God. And truthfully, like, like I get, there's so much that God is mystery and that's mm-hmm. beautiful. But as soon as you say God is mystery, you're saying something about God. Yes. And so the apathetic tradition is helpful as it can be in some ways of actually um, being able to, to, to allow God to be God, because mm-hmm. let's be honest, like um, God is not a white, you know, God is not a white man with throwing thunderbolts from heaven. <gasps> God is not, you know, you know, God is not a, you know, a Scandinavian beauty pageant winner. You know, God is not a warmonger. Um, you know, you know what I mean? God is not truthfully pro-American. He's pro-humanity. He's mm-hmm. pro-creation. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, so we have this, these, these ways that we have put these identities and on God. I'd so, say to push that one farther real quick, just because I know enough Western people like that's right. God's not pro-American. It's not pro-Western either. It, so we can't distance ourselves and just say, well, these people, my people, are the loudest about this foolishness. So obviously we can just say, look at them. We don't have to look at us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah. not pro-Western. It's it's well, yeah, he's all not, encompassing. Yeah, he's not pro-Republican. He's not pro-Democrat. He's not pro-capitalist. He's not pro-socialist. Like at the end, and even he's not pro-heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. Right. And so like when we move through those, those different things, um, I lost my main point now because you interrupted <laughs> pro well, well, no, um, Where you're going in that is uh, the the God that's just beyond and playing oh, with the, the notion apophat- of naming. Ap- yeah, the apophatic. And again, I mean, apophatic, like if I didn't describe it, it's just literally the notion that you can't say something about God, right? You used three synonyms afterwards, so I didn't stop you on that okay. one. Okay, awesome. Um, and, and, and I think like, like it's helpful to, for us to be able to deconstruct the ways that we have constructed our own version of God, mm-hmm. but we could get stuck in that. So that all of a sudden we can't say anything about God. And the reality is that I think when we read the text together, when we read the scriptures together, especially mm-hmm. within community, when we hear each other's stories, especially within community, God can't help but be named in those moments. Right. So God yeah. is the God that is not just with me. God is the God that is with you. God is the God that is present mm-hmm. in, in, in so many different ways. And like, again, like as soon as we say God is mystery, we've, we've now, we've now revealed something about God or the scriptures reveal something about God. But again, it's that whole reveal conceal thing, right? It's, it's, well, it's God playing hide and seek with us, in, in, but in ways that yeah. it's, it's actually beautiful and inviting because 
God's not just saying I'm mystery, now back up. God's saying, I like I am mystery. Please be present with me in the midst of that. Because truthfully, we are actually mystery as well as created mm-hmm. images of God. Well, and I'd say God is a mystery that God is undefinable, but not unknowable. God is not absolutely nameable. We can't say everything, but we can say something of value. And what you just what you were just uh, pointing to and moving from the apophatic to the cataphatic, the I can say nothing or I can actually name. We need both of those tensions. Uh, if anyone loves uh, C.S. Lewis and his a Grief Observed, it's from those iconoclastic, my world-breaking moments that he got to name something about God in the same way it was from her world-breaking that Hagar got to say something true. That it's these moments that allow us to say something real, valuable, and life-giving that never exists when everything runs as it should. Because it's through the cracks that the light gets in, my friend. Yeah, I want to throw some at you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so going to the second question uh, of the head is, in hearing Hagar's story, what systems kept Hagar's wisdom from affecting the main narrative? One word, patriarchy. Well, that's accurate. But <laughs> Period. Ex- and it- stop. Full stop. <laughs> no tribalism? Oh, no patriarchy. Just patriarchy. Just patriarchy. Because if she was a male Egyptian, you know, she would have been like, and the male Egyptian had something to say. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, no, patriarchy, uh, slavery, uh, power dynamics in general. Um, I wouldn't go so much within the idea of tribalism because this is playing on the idea of ethnicity at the time and different, like, Obviously, they would not understand themselves as nation states within the modern conception of nation states. But these are two different, quote unquote, peoples in mm-hmm. that sense that are that are not necessarily tribes within one group. They're different peoples in that sense of, of how they would have understood the the locality because you have like a Babylonian and you have an Egyptian at that time. I'd fundamentally disagree with the historical construct you did. However... The judge says the point stands. Okay. I'm not sure where you're going with that, but all right. Um, so I'm just saying like, like they, they, they are like tribalism for me, at least mm-hmm. when I, when I break it down, like, like for example, like, so in, in Africa, when we talk about tribalism, yeah. um, like in the country where my, 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 my ancestors are from Togo, um, you have the Ewa people and the Mena people mm-hmm. and they're side by side. They, they are, they are the same people, but they are different tribes in a sense. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, where Egypt and and Ur of the Chaldees, um, they are not from the same region of space. Mm-hmm. So they, they they don't have. There's no cultural nuances or commonalities mm-hmm. that 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 that, dis, that that bridge the gap to say that it's tribal. It's tribal. It's intra-tribal um, conflict versus like. I don't even have. I'm, I'm blanking on the right word for it right now. But ethnic conflict, mm-hmm. right? That, that's 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 what I, I know. Mean that. I get you, and I would agree in the sense of um, it, it's the form of difference that you you want to uh, subordinate. And so when it comes to it, you, the main narrative, um, couldn't directly be affected. And I I would say in this one, largely at least the way the narrative goes, because those who've always had power have a hard time understanding, hearing, or validating the stories of the powerless. So Abraham, being a rich man from Ur, who comes into the story 
with wealth, prosperity, and being somewhat older aged as a male in the society, as a chieftain. Like he's a man who gets to define places. When he goes down to Egypt, Pharaoh himself talks to Abram. So it's a man who is used to authority and being able to have a sense of naming. Then you have a person who cannot name, who's always being named, um, come into the story. And I say it'd be akin to the way you hear some of the dialogues around Black Lives Matter now between um, some people trying to do their research as white allies saying, oh, because we never could know. The reason you couldn't know is if you haven't had any experience and within that narrative, it's almost until they become Hagar in Egypt, they cannot understand the naming and plight of the Egyptian Hagar in slavery, mm -hmm. that they have no ability to hear the ones because you have to then trust the person who doesn't represent you. And that's where it gets broken down um, to be a little bit rudimentary and simplistic. But since they wouldn't trust her story, wouldn't trust her narrative, they could not grow from her wisdom. And so history had to have them have it proved, which seems like the more painful 500 years for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, to quote uh, one of our, our, our both of our well, mentors from from back in the day, wisdom is gained in two ways. Your experience is somebody else's. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, somebody else's is usually uh, a lot easier to deal with. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but in, in that, to me, that's the biggest break. Because, yes, you're right. Patriarchy, absolutely. Um, ethnic divisions, difference of, of tribal peoples, absolutely. But also a, a lack of empathy to be able to both respond to and to experience the other stories as valid. Which is remarkable right now because um, a lot of people seeing the videos I get, get to hear with some of my friends who are white allies. They're like, oh my goodness, this is so shocking to me. Who would have known? Well, I wouldn't call them white allies. If they see a video and say shocking, who would have known? Well, I say ally simply um, just, okay, the recently woke, because uh, some of them, they, they have tried to ally to the best of their ability and donations standing next to, but for whatever reason, um, as much as they tried to stand on the side, they said, no, we understand this is the right side of history. They couldn't quite extend the trust that these people defined and named their realities well. They always, they always tried to have it like, well, they, that thing happened, but I'm sure there's more to the story that we just don't know. Um, even when they're trying to be, so I guess you'd call it a benevolent racism um, in that sense, just because we wouldn't trust the people naming their own reality. And that break, I think, is one of the biggest breaks in humanity. We never trust somebody else to know themselves, to know their experience, or to say, how does power treat them well? Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Um, yeah, no, but I think like, but just say you're probably right. Ally would probably be too strong of a word. So I will go with the, the recently woke. Yeah, no, just like for me, like the language of allyship in general, mm -hmm. um, I, I get it and it can be helpful in some places, but at the same time, um, in this moment, it feels like such a performative task. Mm. that it, it, I'm just over over it because it's like, yeah. cool, you posted something on your social media. Hey, cool, you donated $20 to Black Lives Matter. Awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad that you did that. Um, 
yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? But then yeah. your very next post is is life is normal again, right? And 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 I, and, I, and, I, and it's like when I think of allies, you know what I, you know what I mean? I think of those who jumped on the freedom ride buses, you know, with with the freedom riders, um, and got their skulls cracked right alongside of of their black brothers and sisters. You know what I mean? Like that to me is ally. Um, mm-hmm. Those who put their bodies on the line because black bodies are already on the line, like that is ally. Like, you know, so you know what I mean. You'd see it more like um, some of the people in the recent um, Black Lives Matter protests who formed a white chain in front of the black protesters to say, um, exactly. "Our privilege will stop some of the clubs." Exactly, and if it doesn't, we'll get hit first, right? Like to me, that yeah. is an ally. That makes um, sense. And, and, and like, you know, you know what I mean? And, and that moves beyond even the idea of benevolent racism. Cause like, I get, I guarantee you some of those soccer moms in, it was in, in uh, Kentucky, in Kentucky, um, hadn't worked all the way through whether or not they were racist or anti-racist, whatever. They're just like, you're black, like, like, like black people should not be getting, getting beat. Black people should not be getting murdered. You know what I mean? And I'm okay. I'd rather you come with, 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 with your, you know, with your little bit of racism intact and call you an ally when you're putting your body on the line to protect other black bodies. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like that makes more sense to me than the person that can, you know, basically quote, you know, Ibrahim X. Kendi's book by heart. And they, you know, I donated to Black Lives Matter and, and I, I posted a black square on Tuesday. Um, like, good for you, man. Like, hey, every little bit helps. Um, but until you're on the front line, putting your body on the front line, like, you know, in Vancouver here, like we're we're in Vancouver, and and the protesters that got arrested b- about trying to bring awareness to Hogan's album, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, okay, like you literally put you you put yourselves in line. You guys got arrested, like you said, okay, cool, like like this isn't mm-hmm. cool that 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 the black strap corner was literally erased from Vancouver's history. Mm-hmm. Like nobody nobody knew about that place, and it wasn't it wasn't like it was erased a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago. Like this is like we're talking about fifty years ago, mm-hmm. an entire community gets erased out of Vancouver's history. And I would talk about like, so the people that they, they put themselves on the line, they put themselves, I don't know about any, I don't know any of their philosophical underpinnings. I don't know about, are they fully dismantling their racism or not? Mm-hmm. I'm like, man, you put your bodies on the line to bring awareness to, to, to the, to the black struggle. And I'm like, I can call that an ally. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I mean? So that's, 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 I'm probably being a little bit harsh, but I've, I've just seen so much performative allyship. And I'm using air quotes when I say that over the past like few weeks that I probably feel a little bit jaded, just to be honest. <laughs> and don't worry, homie, uh, your tone definitely uh, let people know that air quotes were going around that. <laughs> um, but also that does bring up a really good point. When it comes to these things, um, when we when we say that Hagar's story, what kept her story from being heard was a lack of trust, even if you said all Egyptians matter, um, it's. It is that idea that um, these aren't philosophical things to sign off on. These are embodied incarnate lives to be connected to. So if this becomes the idea that it is the um, correct thing to say at the moment, rather than a challenge to a way to live, then we're completely misunderstanding. And then also that means we're also selling it cheaply which is to say allyship just means that you wore a um, little band that has BL, hashtag BLM on it. And that that's not being ally. 
ally has to affect some of the ideas if we understand that the systemic systems, the way social narratives work, put people at a disadvantage, then allyship is part of joining in the conversation that dismantles and gives space to those that have been displaced by. Yeah. Um, question for you in the mix of this. Would Sarah have considered herself Hagar's ally? <laughs> um, in the beginning, yes. When she said, here's my servant, make her a wife. But then when it got uncomfortable, she said, no, let me remind you of your place. This is uncomfortable now. Okay, so everybody, let's, let's, let's learn a lesson from that. That's called performative allyship. <laughs> Especially since her body was used to secret, well, not even secretly, her body was used to advance her household. So she got elevated, she got promoted, she was given status as a connection to the advancing of Sarah's position within the house. And then as soon as she felt uncomfortable that her position in the household structure could be threatened, even though according to the narrative and everywhere it's framed, it was never questioned. This was only something she experienced herself. She took away the idea of partnership and said, okay, you lose the title of wife and actually makes claims of my slave as opposed to your wife. So basically, if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're trying to tell me is that Sarah's selfies, she thought they were selfless, mm -hmm. but it turns out she was selfish. I was just saying Sarah's middle name was Karen. That's what I'm saying. And Abraham's middle name was Chad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, that's that's a little bit too disrespectful. I apologize if anyone is offended by that last statement. <laughs> and I apologize to anybody named Chad. We're not actually making fun of you personally. That's up in the air. But huh, for the Next one, moving into the reflective heart question. So often we only pay attention to Abraham or the commonly heard narrative. Can you name a time when your understanding was affected by those outside the main or commonly heard narrative? How did it challenge or change you? And did it affect your view of Jesus? Hmm. Like, I think for myself in, in that question, um, so I would say I would start from two places that are really challenging and changing me or have challenged and have changed me. Um, but I think it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. It's always a dynamic process. Um, is one is what, what, like, how do we talk about our indigenous brothers and sisters? Hmm. And again, um, I intentionally say, how do we talk about our, our indigenous brothers and sisters is that a lot of people would use the language. Well, how do we talk about the indigenous problem or the black problem? Like they'll use language like that as if like black people or indigenous people were problematic, right? When it's, and, and so it, it, to me, that language is in, inherently latent. Um, it's, 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 it's latent with the po with the possibility of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Dri it's dripping with it, you know what I mean? In the mix of it, because it, it assumes that white is right and that we can fix these problematic things and help them to kind of be like us. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm black, so that's not really, I'm just using generalized language <laughs> in the mix of that. Um, and then the second part for me that has really been challenging challenging me is like, like again, how do we talk about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters as well? Um, 
and non-identifying ones as well. So like, I don't want to put anybody in a binary in the, in the, in that, in that part, but and I, I don't say that to be funny. I just, I just know that my language is coded in, in, in binary yeah, yeah. language. And, and I, I don't want to honor the fact that not everybody would, 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 would hold to, to, to that. I know I only laugh to say we're, this is one of the parts of the, of these um, conversations we have that one always feels almost like a tragic comedy is trying to create space for everyone. We get so cautious of naming anything because um, I say typically in these conversations, we have a poor understanding of restorative arcs to say that if you made a misstep at any point, doesn't mean that um, you're now evil for life. Uh, Hopefully, I know myself. Uh, this question points to like many times. I, well, do you mind if I, let, let me let me just finish my, my thought on that? On oh that my question. apologies, man. No, no problem. So well, the reason I bring up both of those is that, um, like, I, like the idea of like, uh, like you know, we use we throw out we've been throwing out mm-hmm. the language of anti-racist lately. You, you know, you know what I mean. Um, and I think like both of those narratives have really highlighted for me that the ways that like people that are not myself are also like how mm-hmm. they're oppressed. And so especially being in June, which is, you know, like Pride Month, which, you know, in a sense honors the Stonewall, the Stone Stonewall, right? Yeah, yep. Stonewall riots. Um, and, and the people that, that that were brutalized in the mix of that. Um, while we're also in the world fighting um, for fighting anti-blackness, but then also in Canada where anti-indigenous sentiments are being challenged and, and, and pushed right now. So like we have this convergent moment where these narratives are, are, are actually oh. coming to the surface. And you're missing, uh, at least for the um, American narrative, is June 19th is when the final part of... I'm intentionally not trying to name that because I'm not sure that I'm happy that Donald Trump made Juneteenth popular. Because honestly, I, I was really, I was honestly really happy that that was something that only black people celebrated because it was like our little secret, like, yeah, buddy, we know what day it is. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> uh, just to let you know, you're not the only ones to celebrate it. You get a mild tipping of a hat from the white liberals who would be like, you know what day this is. I'm historically smart. I'll be honest, until, until this moment, I have never heard a white person just, just in all honesty, I've never heard a white person celebrate Juneteenth. Most people ask, like, what, what is that? You know, well, I mean, they might, they might have been aware of it because of like that Atlanta episode where they celebrate Juneteenth, and uh, Donald Glover's character is like, "What am I doing at this party?" You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but that's like, that's like to me, like that's pop culture's like only reference. <laughs> well, that's because you never knew people from the South. That and- is true. Well, actually, I do know people from the South, so that's not true. But it's true that I've never really existed in the South, outside okay, of Southern California. Because there, because um, progressive white liberals have different accents. And the sweet ones down in Texas, when I used to live there, would call every person born on June 19th, my, my emancipation baby. It's like, yeah, you celebrate new life here. And so you heard it a lot. It just wasn't. I'd say the difference be it wasn't large corporate. It wasn't as common. Not everyone was doing it, but you, you did get a consistent naming that for whatever reason, I don't know what it is with Southern mamas, but it always had to do with the child being born saying you represent the new life that's possible on this day. Yeah. That's, and that's awesome, man. Um, but yeah. So, but, but anyways, my, 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 my the, the, the part about what, what, where it changes, like, like, did it affect my view of Jesus? Yeah. yeah. 
um, I would say like, like, you know, to quote James Cone or well, to utilize James Cone, not to quote him directly, but to utilize James Cone and the idea of like, God is the God of the oppressed. So if God is the God of the oppressed, that means God is like, so who are the oppressed people around us? We, we, we must identify, we must under, we must listen to their narratives and then trust that, okay, if God is God of the oppressed, then that means God is God of, of the indigenous. God is God of, of, of the black, of, of black people, the black struggle. God is God of the LGBTQ struggle. And I know that, that that's going to push certain people's buttons because it, it doesn't centralize them. Like, well, what do you mean God's not like, well, God's everybody's God. And it's like true, but the Bible over and over and over and over again, always says God is on the side of the oppressed. Well, I'd say actually what you're doing pushes it a little bit farther because um, when you when you named like the LGBTQ, which most people would say, well, yeah, God is the God of all peoples. But there they'd say this is a definite wrong. And I say iron ironic or serendipity. I'm not sure which one I want, but either way, um, Hagar would be the wrong people who say God could not be present with Hagar, the Egyptian slave. Um, so in that same en way, like enslaved Egyptian, enslaved Egyptian, my apologies. Um, but in that same way, you're naming a group that people say, no, you couldn't because you're bad. You couldn't because you're morally questionable. You couldn't because, and just said, yeah. God is within their struggle for liberation and freedom. Yeah. And so that means by definition of that, that the church must be committed to being anti-racist, to being anti-oppression, to being anti-homophobic, mm -hmm. right? To being anti-transphobic. Mm -hmm. Like the church must be committed to this. And it's not about whether or not, well, the Bible says this or the Bible says that. Just by definition that God is the God of the oppressed and the Bible over and over and over again talks to that. If God is the God who rains down justice, you know, you know what I mean? Whose justice flows like an ever running river. You know, you know, the mm -hmm. quote, is it uh, Micah, I believe? Um, sure. One of the one of the minor prophets, and again, sorry to call him a minor prophet. That's again using central, you know, marginalized language. Sorry for the minor prophets. You guys are the prophets that don't have as much airtime as the other prophets. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So but but anyways, but but to say that, like like for me, that, that right now that is provoking and challenging me, and I think it is affecting my view of Jesus because. Like I can like like just to be honest with with you like being educated in primarily white theological spaces, mm -hmm. um, any theological difference was is always labeled so black theology, indigenous theology, whatever theology, yeah. and I would say that Jesus it has an active program of centralizing those voices. Then so if you feel the need to compel to put an adjective in front of the type of theology that you are talking about at that moment, then that's probably the voices that you need to be listening to the closest because they are not aligning with the main narrative. They are going to subvert the main narrative in ways that are going to offer up perspective mm -hmm. and, and, and images uh, like, like perspectives and what's the word I'm looking for. <sighs> They're going to give us a glimpse into who God is yeah. in ways that we cannot get from the dominant narrative. The dominant narrative is so late, is so laced with power that it blinds us for, to the ability to actually see God. Wow. 
And I said a lot of stuff there, but hopefully it made sense. <laughs> no, no, it made sense, man. Um, and it is a good challenge. Like you said, it's anything we label care is only labeled because we have an assumption that something else is the proper, especially when it comes to theology, you label things because it goes outside of Western European hegemony. And we say that this is the only true stream, even though there's been prophetic, profound, and beautiful voices coming out of the African traditions, the Latin American traditions, some of the Orthodox traditions, but they just are not the streams that we swim in. So we, we name those differently, which then makes them automatically peripheral in a subset. Um, in the same way, Hagar was named differently, so couldn't be heard. And what I love in that is her wisdom predated the main story's ability to gain that wisdom by close to 500 years because they would not listen to a voice that wasn't theirs. And that should be a profound critique for us socially, as we're saying, what is the future of Western cultures? What is North America going to do? How do we listen to Black Lives Matter? We inhibit our ability to be able to construct a better future, to get greater wisdom when we shut down stories, voices, and experiences that do not immediately represent the main narrative of a country. No, that's good, man. That's good. Um, well, we'll call it, like, like, like just because of time, we probably need to start moving on and wrapping up. But I wanted, like, if, did, like I know I cut you off when you were yeah. about to answer because okay. I, I was in the middle of a role. Um, but did you have any other thoughts on that question? Yeah. I'll just say, when it came to that, the, the biggest move for me in hearing another voice was having to sit in stories that weren't my own. I'd say I got to do Christology with a, um, a trans man. I can't, re I can't remember uh, his name because it's been a few years. But he did his, his doctoral work in Maximus the Confessor, and he was able to bring out this beautiful Christology there. And then what was really challenging for me is he said, the act of theology is the act of finding yourself in God. And so he showed us an art project he was working on across America that he was trying to get published, which was the idea of Jesus and the cross being the transformative work of the pre-op and post-op trans man. And the he did almost stations of the cross to, and the end, the post-op was the idea of new creation. Now, whether you agree with that or not, or whether that is something that sounds beautiful or heretical to you, I don't care. Um, but there is this moment there for me that opened up the possibility that maybe God wasn't so static, cold, and distant. Maybe you can find yourself within God. And so where I find God then doesn't always have to mirror me. And that's put me into some tension because all of a sudden my narrative wasn't dominant but it's allowed me to see god and to see more facets of god than i thought even existed no that's good man um and i i would push a little bit on just what you said when you said i don't care because <laughs> I, I would i would i would just dis, i would say that like you don't actually believe that i know you say that because um you don't want to have a rebuttal to what's you know like you don't care about the rebuttal but you actually deeply care that people um, can understand what you are saying 
just, just from yeah, what yeah. I know of you, that you actually you deeply care and you deeply are committed to helping people understand in such a way that they can learn to hear new stories. Yeah. Right. And so no, no, you're right. You're right. So, that, so that I would like, say it's a little bit callous just to say, I don't care, but like, you don't care about their rebuttal. You don't care about their, their, but yeah, kind of statements, right. You're saying this, this story matters full stop. Yeah. And yeah. I'd say I, I was being cavalier, but that was supposed to be heard somewhat tongue in cheek, which all doesn't always get um, experienced when you don't have the person in front of you and you're right. I don't care if you agree with it or not, but I do care how you experience the story, your ability to dialogue with the story and be able to find God in new stories. And for that to affect the way you understand Jesus is not a static entity, as Carl said, not the beauty pageant white Jesus of the enlightenment, um, but a Jesus that is found as an Indian Jesus, a First Nations Jesus, a black Jesus, a white Jesus, but these do not delimit to say we have to choose the one right one that Jesus is then revealed in all the images of God that can be present within this world. And in that, I am deeply committed and care whether we can start moving that direction. Yeah, no, that's good, that's good. Um, so we're, 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 we're kind of in a space where we need to begin to wrap up. And yep. so we're, let's jump to the hands question now and let's, let's answer that and try to give something helpful and useful as we, as we, as we move towards wrapping up. And so the hands question is, how can we intentionally engage Hagar's voice? Where do we hear her in people today? Uh, I'd say speaking from a uh, cisgendered white male evangelical uh, seminary trained position usually means that my voice gets privileged a lot or voices like mine. I'd say how um, me or people like me can engage Hagar's voice is shutting up. Um, not trying to explain, not trying to validate, not trying to speak for. But honestly, the thing that has affected me most in being able to experience Hagar's voice is pulling back enough to let Hagar speak. That's good. Yeah, I, I, I would concur with that. I would say that, like, I would just use the language of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Is that, like, I may not agree, I may not understand, I may not have the capacity to ever get on the same page as, mm -hmm. as somebody but I should be curious about their stories. I should be curious about the way they speak about God, right? Yeah. And, and again, it's not even, a, it's like, like when people say, well, I agree or I disagree, you're asking the wrong question uh -huh. as you're entering into, like, like you're formulating something based on you being centralized. And so I would say, in order for us to hear Hagar's voice intentionally, uh -huh. we have to decentralize ourselves and then start to centralize other stories, stories we agree with, stories we disagree with, uh -huh. stories we understand, stories we don't understand. And we have to say that, if we believe that God is omnipresent, that means like present everywhere, then God is present in that story as well. Yeah. And if we can, if we can begin to have the engagement and experiment to say their story, God is in it. Yes. I want to know the God that's in that story that because that story will help me to understand God in a way that I can't understand it unless I can see God present in that story. Oh, no, and I so for me, that's agree. It just, the reason why you shut up, which is strong language for um, talking to people like me, is simply because when it's curiosity. Oh, I wasn't pushing back on your language. Oh, okay. I was I was saying, no, no. I was saying I concur with you. I would just name it as curiosity. That's all. Oh, because like, curiosity. No, no, no. I'm feel just... free to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not about you, bro. <laughs> it's like I've just seen curiosity 
far too often when it's the marginalized voice, the person goes, well, just playing devil's advocate here. Or if you say this life matters, well, what about uh, the one we hear all the time with, with pacifism? If you're a pacifist, what if you walked home and someone was killing your entire family and torturing yeah. some slowly? Like, so, would you but, but still that's be not, a pacifist? That's, that's, not, that's not curiosity. That's coercion. Oh, I completely right? agree. So, but I've heard it framed in that. So I try to take that language. The same way you said peace should be renamed as violence for these narratives. I've had, for curiosity's sake, um, devil's advocate, yeah. just be a very polite way of saying, I'm going to force you back well, into my narrative. So I just want to expose something in, in even that language. So if you want to play the devil's advocate, that means you want to be the devil's homeboy. If you want to be the devil's homeboy, you are not following Jesus, just <laughs> point blank, right? So at that point, like literally, like as soon as those words want to come out of your mouth, I just want to be the devil's advocate. Oh, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus instead. And I'm going to shut up and I'm going to walk with the marginalized instead. So <laughs> own it, repent, follow Jesus. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Amen. Oh. All right. So with that, any any other final thoughts? Any 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 anything we want to wrap with? Because we'll call. I think we've said a lot, and we've definitely gone over our our our, our allotted time by yep. a little bit. But you guys are used to that by now. So if you do listen all the way to the end every time, thank you so much. Because let's be honest, we take a lot of your time, and we're honored that you allow us to take it. And so, Glenn, why don't you just give us a really quick summary of what we talked about today, and then we'll just you know we'll we'll, we'll take out with yep. the rest. And if you just skip to the summary to say, I get the highlight reel, that's also cool. We thank you. So for in this moment of being able to step into Hagar's story, in the head question, we asked, how does naming God from personal experience affect our understanding of God's name? And we realized in this ability to name gave value to our experiences, to where the God that was with us in pain, those moments of breaking and then naming gave us permission to constructively engage the spiritual community and to say, we have something of value to bring back to the community in our lived experience of God. And that did not have to be defended against anybody else's experience, but we say, God has been this to me. How does it resonate with you? In the heart question, we said that main narratives can often overshadow the other voices. So how has our understanding been affected by the outside voices, those who are not the commonly heard narrative? And did it affect the way we understood Jesus? And we had named that there was multiple communities which would be considered abnormal or outside of what would be called normativity that gave us clear, distinct, beautiful images of the Imago Dei, the image of God, and being able to see God in these places, hearing these voices, actually expanded our understanding of where Jesus can be present, how Jesus is present, and called us to the marginalized voice to say, we'll walk with all those that are the image of God in all their struggles to find freedom and liberation. And then we stepped into the hands. How can we intentionally engage Hagar's voice? And one, we said, if you represent the dominant, the dominant narrative, then you need to silence yourself in order to give room for Hagar to speak. Because if Hagar has been taught her whole life that her voice does not matter, she will not trust the first instance. They say, no, no, we promise this one's for real. That we have to intentionally silence things 
and follow up questions, not with questions to check to litmus test, but those of exploration to say, I hear what you're saying. Can you tell me more about this experience of God? Can you tell me more about what it means to be a person of color in Canada? Can you tell me more about what it means to engage God, as Carl said, from a LGBTQ or trans person that says, I've experienced God in a way that you might not from your vantage point. And we see the engagement as an act of exploring the vast nature of who God can be here. All right. Thanks, Glenn. And so with that, uh, we're going to just uh, we're going to wrap up. And so, as always, we just want to thank you for, for joining the conversation and for other ways to be able to join in, to connect and to join in the conversation. You can go to www.fos.church. That's www.fos.church. And so there's lots of ways for us for I mean, for you to be able to connect with us. And we would love for you to be able to connect with us. Um, yeah, just find ways to join the story. And with that, peace.